please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. And we'll read verses 18 through 22 together. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, that is Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, we pray that you would be with us now as we come to your word and the preaching of it. That you would bless your servant as he preaches your word, and you would bless the hearers of it. Lord, we pray that your word would be precious to us today, that we would store it up in our hearts, that we would treasure it. It would be something we would think upon often and speak about frequently. And so, Lord, be with us by your Spirit today. Prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word and to lay hold of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember a little over a year ago planning a wedding, or at least assisting my bride-to-be in planning a wedding, for grooms don't actually do much of the planning. Or don't get to make many of the decisions, at least not when it comes to the finer details where an eye to aesthetics is required. But I realized in the not-so-distant past that a wedding can be a lot of work. There are many choices and decisions to be made. Decisions about venues or color schemes, florals, and of course, the food. Food is an important decision when it comes to the wedding planning process. But here's the thing about food and weddings. No matter what culture you are in, no matter what country you come from, no matter what time period even that you may consider throughout human history, when it comes to food in a wedding context, whether it's the wedding itself or the rehearsal dinner beforehand or even the groomsmen or the bridal party festivities that happen before. The decision is always what kind of food will be served. It's never a question as to whether there will be food or not. Shall we have a feast or shall we have a fast? is never the tension when making a decision for food in a marriage context. 
furthest question from anyone's mind when they are invited to a wedding is, I wonder if there will be any food. We automatically assume. And it's always an accurate assumption. And that's because weddings, perhaps more than any other events, are times for joy and celebration, which aligns well with the joy of food and the joy that food brings. And one of the reasons why is because weddings, perhaps more than any other, are events that mark new beginnings or the beginning of newness, a new relationship of a one flesh union, a new commitment until death do you part, a new home being established, a new family in the making. Weddings are not only about food and feasting, but also about newness. What we see from our text today, these various themes all woven together into one interaction that Jesus has with some disciples. And we see these very themes explored on a deeper level by Jesus Christ. And as we do, we see clearly emerge from our text today, Mark 2, 18 through 22, this reality that Jesus, our bridegroom, makes all things new. Jesus, as our bridegroom, makes all things new. We see this reality at least least hinted at right away in our text. We come to understand that there is a picture of feasting rather than fasting in Jesus' life with his disciples. So much so that more than simply the Pharisees or the disciples of the Pharisees have taken notice of Jesus and his disciples. We also see that John's disciples have now taken note as well. John, of course, being the baptizer we were introduced to back in Mark chapter 1. Jesus' own cousin, that Elijah-like forerunner to Jesus the Messiah. Even John's disciples now are, are brought onto the scene. And they seem to have more in common with the disciples of the Pharisees at this point, that emerging hostile group to Jesus Christ, rather than having more in common with Jesus and his own disciples. And so these two groups, The disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees come to Jesus here in Mark 2 and ask him about fasting. Because evidently, Jesus and his disciples were not fasting like these other two groups. What do we know about the fasting practices of the Pharisees? Well... Jesus, when he speaks of a Pharisee in one of his parables in Luke 18, Jesus describes the Pharisee this way, putting these words in his mouth. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Given the zeal of the Pharisees to set themselves apart from not only 
unbelievers or tax collectors or Gentiles, but even to set themselves apart from other religious sects, other Judaistic groups, the Pharisees were known for their zeal to pursue righteousness. And so it had become a common practice for Pharisees to fast twice a week as part of this zeal. In other words, the Pharisees were fasting 104 days out of a year as a minimum. If you were to fast like a Pharisee, you could cut your grocery bill by 30%. So that was the Pharisees. At least 104 fast days a year, two per week. What about the disciples of John? What kind of fasting would the disciples of John have engaged in? Well, it's not as clear from the text of Scripture. We can't put a a precise number to it or a frequency per week. But think about John. When John appears on the scene, we see that he is an ascetic. He is denying himself of certain foods. In fact, the Scriptures clearly give us the meat and potatoes of John's diet. His diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. And John also wasn't given to drinking. In fact, when the angel Gabriel showed up to John's father, Zacharias, the angel Gabriel said, no wine or strong drink shall be upon his lips. And so John the Baptist was an ascetic. He was one who had a strange diet, one who fasted from the ordinary foods that other people would have partaken of, even fasted from any alcoholic drink. Jesus confirms these practices when he speaks of his cousin in this way in Matthew 11. He says, John came neither eating nor drinking. That's how Jesus defined his cousin's habits. It is to be expected then that John's disciples would have likely taken a similar approach to their master. As a disciple would seek to become like his teacher. And so these are the two groups that come to Jesus in our passage to ask him about fasting, those who would have been no strangers to fasting and who would have been given to much fasting themselves. That's important for us to have in our minds at this point because when these two groups come to ask Jesus about fasting, they're not simply asking about the fasts that were prescribed in the Old Testament Scriptures. They're not simply asking about the one fast day during the time of Moses that was commanded, that day of atonement. They're not asking about the additional four fast days that were commanded during the time of exile. Or that fast day number six that eventually emerged in the time of Esther. They're not speaking about these six commanded by God fast days. They're rather talking about these extraordinary, voluntary fasts that the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John are 
given to. So the question doesn't seem to be about the required commanded fasts of the scriptures. In fact, it must not be assumed that Jesus and his disciples are neglecting those commanded fast days. In fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount even teaches his disciples on how to fast. That when you fast, you're not to be like the hypocrites. You're not to look like you're starving and under severe affliction. Of course, Jesus taught much on fasting, even to the extent that he said some things cannot be driven out except by prayer and by fasting. Speaking of certain demons that Jesus had to cast out because his disciples were unable. So Jesus and his disciples are clearly not given to the same frequency of voluntary fasting like the Pharisees or the disciples of John. And that seems to be then the reason behind this particular question that comes from these two groups. Why does Jesus in his life with his disciples appear to be such a different picture? One of feasting rather than fasting. One of eating and drinking rather than one of denying the body of food and beverage. It's a good question. Let's see how Jesus answers it. And we see Jesus answering this question by asking them a question. Not unknown for Jesus to do this on occasion. And we see the question that Jesus asks them. Can the friends of the bridegroom, there in verse 19, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? The first thing I want you to notice in this question that Jesus gives as the first part of his answer is that he refers to himself as the bridegroom and his disciples as friends or maybe perhaps more literally groomsmen. Now this is clearly wedding or marriage language. And we've already considered the universality of all events surrounding a marriage or a wedding or even the lead up to it being a time of feasting rather than fasting. And so Jesus is already drawing upon a, a universally known fact that Jesus' arrival as the bridegroom is ushering in something akin to a wedding or marriage that is soon to take place. And so that's the first thing we need to recognize here in Jesus' answer, that he brings in this imagery of a marriage, and he asserts his identity as the bridegroom. Now what do we make of this identity of a bridegroom? Well, to understand the full weight or import of what Jesus is saying here as he refers to himself as the bridegroom, we need to look at a passage like Isaiah 62. There are many places we could turn in the Old Testament, but this one uh, is clear. 
and it's beautiful. Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5, reads thus, You shall no longer be termed forsaken. And this is the Lord speaking to his people. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate. But you shall be called Hephzibah, which when that's translated means my delight is in her. And your land, Beulah, or if we translate that word, means married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In this passage in Isaiah 62, the Holy Spirit is clearly teaching that the Lord God is the bridegroom towards Israel, his people. And Jesus then assumes or asserts this very identity to himself. Saying that the bridegroom has now come. The one who promised a marriage. The one who promised that he would marry his people and rejoice over them as a bridegroom would rejoice over his bride. Jesus says that he is Yahweh. He is Jehovah who has come to affect the joyous occasion of the marriage between the Lord and his people. And so Jesus is claiming to be the Lord God incarnate who is moving forward the grand plans of God for his people. I don't know about you, but I've often had conversations with people, read books. The people or the authors simply say things like this, that Jesus wasn't quite sure who he was. He never actually quite knew that he was God. Or Jesus never quite claimed to be God. You ever hear things like this? That Jesus really didn't claim to be divine Well, when people say stuff like that, it's complete nonsense. It's complete nonsense because what they don't understand are the myriad of ways in which the Old Testament speaks about God coming to his people. And one of the ways that Isaiah speaks of God coming to his people is in the person and role of a bridegroom in Jesus with full knowledge of Isaiah 62, is saying, I've come as the bridegroom. I've come as the Lord God. Well, second in Jesus' answer, we see the implication of this identification. That as long as the bridegroom is present with the groomsmen, as long as the bridegroom is present with his friends, they cannot fast. In other words, this particular time in which Jesus Christ is Yahweh who's drawn near, this is a time for feasting, not for fasting. A time for celebration, not for sorrow or affliction. 
Anyone who's been to a wedding understands this reality. Anyone who's been a groomsman understands this reality. It's not a time for mourning. It's not a time for fasting. It's a time for celebrating. It's a time for joy. And how great that joy would have been for those friends of the bridegroom to have Yahweh incarnate. Come and call them friends. Well, we see that at this particular time, then, Jesus and his disciples cannot fast because of this joyous occasion. But verse 20 tells us that there will come a time, and the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. It's here that in verse 20 that we see Jesus foretelling a time when he'll be taken away. What are we to understand by those words, taken away? Well, the Greek comes out a little more forcefully that these words, taken away, are not pleasant words. That it's taken away by force and usually against one's will. So what Jesus is foretelling here when he speaks about the bridegroom being taken away is he's foretelling the time of his crucifixion. He's foretelling the time when there will be a reason for sorrow, when there will be a reason for fasting and not feasting. The time when Jesus' own would reject him and not receive him as the bridegroom, but would rather yell out, crucify him, crucify him. That there would come a time when Jesus' own people, rather than looking to his blood for the forgiveness of sins, would rather cry out, let his blood be upon us, as they wanted to see his life drained away from him so that he could no longer inconvenience or upset their way of life. Taken away has the idea of force here as when even the disciples of John the Baptist saw their own leader taken away and imprisoned and eventually beheaded by Herod. So Jesus is speaking of his crucifixion. He's speaking in light of Isaiah 53. Verse 8 of Isaiah 53 says, He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Jesus was taken away. Yes, by force. Yes, by those who sought to murder him. But also, as Isaiah 53 makes clear, also because... Jesus would permit his being taken away. To permit it so that he could take to himself the sins of his people and be struck down for them. To take upon himself the transgressions of the people of God. To take upon himself the guilt and the shame and the filth of the people of God. 
so that one day the people of God could be a redeemed and cleansed and beautified bride. So Jesus foretells a time when fasting will be appropriate. And what about for us today then? As we live in the wake of Jesus' crucifixion, in the wake of his being taken away, and even further in the wake of his being taken up. For we know that after he was crucified, he didn't remain dead, but for three days, and then was raised, and then 40 days later ascended up into heaven to the right hand of God the Father. When we read then a verse like verse 20, we need to see that we live in such a time today when we can fast. In fact, today as we partake of the Lord's Supper, and as we think even about the quantities of the Lord's Supper that we're going to partake of today, it's not a physical feast. A thimble of wine, a morsel of bread. It's a feast, all right. We get to feast on Christ by His Spirit. But it's still not the full celebration and joy of what will one day be. Of what will one day be the marriage supper of the Lamb when the marriage is consummated between Christ and His bride. The Apostle Paul, when he spoke of the institution of the Lord's Supper by our Lord Jesus Christ, he even reminded the church in Corinth that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Till he comes. There have been a lot of debates in Theology and in the history of the church about the presence of Christ in the Supper, the Apostle Paul makes it absolutely clear that Christ is physically absent from the Supper. That in the act of partaking it, we are proclaiming his death, we are proclaiming his being taken away till he comes. And he has not yet come back physically to consummate the marriage. If there's anything clear about the supper in, uh, pertaining to Christ's physical presence is that he's physically absent. So as we partake of the supper today, we partake of a supper that, yes, proclaims that Christ was taken away. And yes, this is an appropriate time for us to fast It's an appropriate time for us to mourn and be in affliction. An appropriate time for us to sorrow over our sins. An appropriate time for us to suffer, even as Christ suffered, as we are his disciples and following in his very own footsteps. But we've not yet achieved the victorious, sinless Christian life. That even now we oftentimes live life through a veil of tears. Tears that will one day be wiped away and be no more 
when the marriage is consummated. But for now, the supper is a reminder that Christ is away, taken away and taken up. The supper is also a reminder to us that there is a greater supper to come, that there will come a day when feasting will be enjoyed to its fullest extent in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so the supper we partake today is one that is sorrow mixed with joy as we live in the tension of our bridegroom being away but our bridegroom coming, coming soon to make all things new. We see then the second part of Jesus' answer here after he says that there will come a day when they will fast. Jesus then seamlessly transitions into two parables. The first one being the foolishness of a new piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, which rather than repairing the garment, makes it worse. I can remember a time or two or maybe three when I tried on a shirt or a pair of pants in the store or in the mall, and they fit perfectly. And then I took the clothes home and cut off the tags and washed them and put them in the dryer. And what was then a perfectly fitting medium shirt in the store quickly became a medium. What were once comfortable fitting pants now became high water, skinny jeans. You've probably experienced it before. Certain fabrics can shrink considerably with washing. Well, this is the principle behind what Jesus is saying here with this parable. That an old fabric that has settled into size with a tear cannot be repaired with an unshrunk patch. The two are simply incompatible. And to mix the two will result in further damage. And we see a similar point in the next parable Jesus gives. The foolishness of new wine in an old wineskin. The idea here is that new wine will continue to off-gas after the first stage of fermentation in the vat. And if placed in a container other than a jar, if placed in a container like a wineskin, it would have to be a pliable wineskin to expand and accommodate the increased pressure. An old wineskin would have no ability to expand, already having gone through that process of expansion. And so Jesus says the new uh, the new wine would burst out as it would burst the old wineskin and spill on the ground, ruining both the wine and the wineskin. So these two different images really have the same point, the loss of the destruction of both, the garment in the first example and the wine and the wineskins in the second, due to the mismatch of the new on top of the old. Or the new inside of the old. That mismatch, Jesus is clear, results in the destruction of both. And so the solution to this problem, as Jesus presents it, is provided there at the end of verse 22. But new wine must be put 
into new wineskins. The idea being that the new wine will off-gas and stretch the pliable new wineskin. Both will be preserved, both will be useful. The point being, once again for both, is that mixing the two is detrimental to both. So what do we make of these two parables that teach one and the same point? Well, first, we need to recognize that Jesus' first coming as the bridegroom is the climax of human history. It's the climax of human history that brings a newness to everything. Hebrews 1 speaks in a similar way. Hebrews begins like this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. In other words, when The Son of God came to earth in Jesus Christ. He came as the climax of all the forms of previous revelation. He was the prophet to come to inaugurate a new phase in the unfolding plan of God's salvation. He was the prophet to come that all other prophets only pointed to or spoke of. But he wasn't simply the latest and greatest in the long line of prophets. We just read that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was also the divine agent through whom the Father spoke to bring about creation. And this aspect of creation is important for our understanding here because it helps us to see something about Jesus' ministry here in Mark. That Jesus' presence with his disciples is the very presence of the Creator. The one who alone can come to make all things new. Even as he made all things in the first place. He is the only one who can come and bring about the renewal that was desperately needed. And Jesus is clear that this is exactly what he came to do. Behold, I make all things new. And that's the point of both parables, that Jesus is instructing on how to avoid destruction. And the avoidance of destruction is found not in a quick fix, Not in a small repair, not in a little patch, not in a simple refill. But a complete renovation that he has come to bring. A new creation, if you will, by the one who powerfully created in the first place. A complete and comprehensive newness in Christ is what's needed to avoid destruction. And that's the clear point of what Jesus is teaching, or the clear principle, if you will. And we can take this principle and apply it in many different ways. We can apply it to the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Covenant came 
as the new wine and the new wineskin. Various places of Scripture speak about the old covenant being old or growing old and becoming obsolete. Not something that needs to be patched up, but something that needs to be replaced. And Jesus came to inaugurate the new covenant in his blood, shed on the cross. He put an end to all the old covenant ceremonies. All the trappings of the old covenant ceremonies, all the bloody rituals, all the types and shadows of animal sacrifice would now give way to a new container, the new Jerusalem with the new 12 Israelite apostles to furnish 12 new tribes from every tribe, tongue, and nation to inhabit this new Jerusalem. And so Jesus took the opportunity here to teach upon the radical shift that would come in the lifetime of that generation. That there would be a seismic upheaval. I think sometimes we fail to appreciate the struggle that this would have brought for many in the first century. Many who lived as pious, faithful Jews century after century, generation after generation, Family life being structured around circumcision for every male, the Passover meal every year, temple worship at least three times a year, the grain offerings, the burnt offerings, the dietary restrictions. These are all things we see the apostles themselves even struggling with in the book of Acts. You see these things being discussed at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Jesus' arrival signaled a seismic shift that was taking place as he came to fulfill all those types and shadows and fulfill all the promises of renewal that the Lord God had promised in the Old Testament, all foreshadowed by the ordinances of the Old Covenant. But to mix the two, we need to remember, would render both useless. And destruction would be the result. In fact, the Galatian church struggled in this way of placing new wine, or at least trying to place new wine into old wineskins. To summarize the problem in Galatia, one author says, people wished in that church to reconcile Judaism with Christianity, to circumcise as well as to baptize. They endeavored to keep alive the law of ceremonies and ordinances and to place it side by side with the gospel of Christ. Paul's letter to the Galatians in the strongest of terms warned them against doing that very thing. And he told them in Galatians 5 to stand fast in the liberty to which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Paul himself taught about the destruction that would happen when new wine was attempted to be placed into old wineskins. 
this isn't just a struggle for a first century church in Galatia. When we think about the churches today who profess to have Christ and the gospel of peace. When you think about these churches that are trying to resurrect Old Testament ceremonies. The sacrifice of the mass. A sacrificing priesthood. Or here's one. Musical instruments to accompany the singing of God's praises. Which was tied to the sacrificial system. Paul and Jesus are both clear. New wine into old wineskins is a recipe for destruction. And if that's the attitude toward old wineskins, which at one time God did command, how should we think of the many things that Christians today want to add to the ceremonies of God which he never commanded? Which brings us to a second way to apply this principle, to avoid vessels of our own making. We should be careful to not only avoid placing new wine into old wineskins to try to resurrect Old Testament ceremonies, repristinate the Old Testament for our worship today. But if that's the case, we should also be adamant about avoiding putting new wine into vessels other than wineskins. Once again, I'll pick on musical instruments. Think of all the musical instruments that were never used or commanded to be used in the temple, that have found their way into churches today. Or think about the human-composed songs that were never commanded, yet have found their way into the worship of the Lord God. Think of the sacraments that have been multiplied in certain contexts that Christ never commanded. Think about the man-made holy days that Christ never commanded. Those days that are more religiously observed than the 52 holy days God has commanded for the new covenant. If new wine and old wineskins spelled disaster, how much more when new wine is completed placed completely in unauthorized vessels. It's like trying to store new wine in a lead container, slowly the poison of the lead leaching into the wine, not only ruining the wine, but also those who partake of it. Jesus, our bridegroom, makes all things new for our good. We must learn to trust his wisdom and what he commands for the new covenant. We must learn to trust him and hold fast to his ordinances alone. Only the new wine of Christ's new covenant grace is compatible with the new wineskins that Christ gives. Those forms and ordinances of new covenant worship. Well, as we close, I want to bring us back to Jesus as our bridegroom. When we call him our bridegroom today, we don't do so as his groomsmen, as his disciples 
were identified here in our passage. As Jesus' disciples today, we are not the groomsmen of our bridegroom. We are the bride. We are the bride who awaits the return of our bridegroom, who awaits the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there is a future wedding that awaits us. There is a newness that is still ahead of us as the church of Jesus Christ. There is still a feast ahead of us as followers of Christ. To bring about the fullness of a new creation. A new relationship with our creator and husband. That will last in eternity. Never to be hindered by our sins. And I hope that helps us position ourselves appropriately today for the Lord's Supper. It is to be a time of celebration. As we look back to the shed blood and broken body of Christ. So that we could be reconciled to God. And I hope it is a time of joy as well as we look forward to the return of Christ to usher in that great wedding day. But it is also a reminder that until that day, until that day of Christ's return, until that day of the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will still find ourselves in a time of affliction, We'll still find ourselves in a time of sorrow for sin. We'll still find ourselves suffering even as our bridegroom was taken away and suffered. This doesn't mean Jesus has failed to make all things new. But we find ourselves in the time period when Jesus has inaugurated the new, but not yet consummated it. When Christ comes, the newness that he has inaugurated in his first coming will be a newness that is consummated in his final coming. Because Jesus, our bridegroom, makes all things new. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him you have drawn near to us to be our husband. And so, Lord, we rejoice at the great reality in the making of being that bride of Christ who will one day descend from heaven as the new Jerusalem, unblemished, spotless, radiant. Lord, we thank you that that is the newness that Jesus Christ came to bring. Help us to live in light of that newness now. Help us to strive after lives that are consistent with that newness. Give us the grace to pursue it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.